Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I said I said the word compelling, I think, approximately one dozen times in the previous episode. Um, and you don't notice it until after, like, <laughs> when you're saying it, you don't notice it. And when you're listening, it immediately jumps out. It's just such a good word. I don't know. I was compelled to say compelling a lot. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the EDH Retcast. My name is Joey Schultz and I am joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the nicest man to ever attack you for lethal, it's Matt Morgan. Joey, do you know why Peter Pan can never be a comedian? Why is that, Matt? It's because his jokes never land. That's actually kind of perfect. I okay, not gonna lie, I really like that one. That's a good dad joke. You're, you're welcome. You might say this one actually did land. That one did land. You know that joke. That joke is timeless. It's never gonna grow up. Anyway, next up, the fellow who puts the Phyrexian man into Phyrexian mana. It's Dana Roach. We uh, got the secret layer for Year of the Rat announced this week. I'm mostly waiting for 2023 Year of the Rabbit when we get Vizardrix. And Eben Prater showing bunnies in the art. Um, I don't know how to say please don't, except by using the words please don't, but I'm going to use those please don't. I don't think anyone wants that. Even in Secret Lair, Vizardrix, alt art? Come on. Oh, Dana, you are a character. Anyway, this is the EDH Recast. EDH Rec is a website that collects data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, we like to give all that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? We're going to be talking about the Achilles heel of very deck archetypes in honor of Hakatos. Yeah, Hakatos the Unscarred, a new legendary creature who represents the character Achilles. He's in the new Theros Beyond Death set. He's really, really crazy with a very fun and flavorful ability that represents his Achilles heel, his one unknown weakness. And we've done an episode on silver bullets before, cards that totally wreck an entire deck strategy. But this particular episode is here to sort of do the opposite of that one. In the silver bullets episode, we were looking over single cards that could devastate an entire strategy, which means that we were looking at a deck from the outside in to seek to destroy it from outside. Now we're going to try and use the opposite perspective. In this case, we're the pilot of the deck, and we want to know our strategic weak points of our deck when we're looking at the deck from the inside out so that we can protect that deck as the pilot. So as a weird bit of context to try and study a deck a bit more thoroughly, we're actually going to assume that the things that our deck is doing are going splendidly well. We're going to imagine that no one we're playing in this game has a unique single silver bullet that would take down our entire strategy. And we want to see what happens, what weaknesses still reveal themselves to us from our own deck's construction or, or our own strategy, even when other people aren't actively pursuing uh, an ability to stop us specifically. And that should hopefully reveal a few things that you can use to work around and improve your decks to try and cover up those Achilles heels of the deck. Are you guys ready? I'm yeah. ready. Let's do it. You bet. Well then, what is our first archetype that we will be studying to try and find the Achilles heel? I think the first thing we're going to look at here is Enchantress decks, particularly because we're talking about the new Theros set that's chocked full of Enchantress goodness. So Enchantress is kind of a generic term used to describe a deck that's built around basically casting enchantments. And the genesis of the term is from Vedern Enchantress way back in Alpha. It's a card that basically draws you a card whenever you cast an enchantment spell. So over the years, we've had additional ones printed. There's our Gothian Enchantress, Mesa Enchantress. And basically the deck's built around casting enchantments that draw you a card that's hopefully an enchantment that draws you more cards to eventually probably Voltron up some kind of a commander to swing in for lethal, or maybe you'll run cards that make tokens when you cast enchantments so you'll go wide, or some combination of that. But basically, at the root, the deck is built around casting a bunch of enchantment spells. So, what is a weak point that you sometimes see in Enchantress decks? Because Dana, as I understand, you actually have an Enchantress deck of your own. I do. I have a Sigarda Enchantress deck that I've been playing, I mean, six-ish years now, so I've had it for a long time. Um, there's a couple different weaknesses in that in that deck and with the archetype. 
Um, Flooding Out is definitely one of them. Uh, the deck is very much built around, like I said, getting that cycle going of casting an enchantment, drawing a card. That's hopefully an enchantment that you can cast. And you can sometimes hit that point where when you draw three lands, you just kind of stop the chain. And just getting one or two enchantments on your on your commander oftentimes isn't enough to really accomplish anything. Plenty of times you need to have them suited up with, you know, three, four, five, six different enchantments. And you need to really get that cycle going or you're just going to run out of gas and be stuck there at, you know, no cards in hand, hoping you top deck an enchantment next turn to get it going again. And if you draw land, you're once again just floundering in in still waters. Yeah, that is totally a thing that I have seen with the Enchantress decks that I've come up against, where they really experience a lot of mana flood. And to be clear, they need a lot of lands in the deck for the deck to have enough mana to do everything that it wants. But so many of the good enchantments tend to be things like that enchant your lands to make them produce more mana. Anyone who's played Estrid, Estrid the Masked probably knows that they've run into this issue because Estrid can also untap your enchanted permanence, which means that she makes a bunch of mana, but then without a good suite of enchantress style effects, you kind of run out of steam. You have a whole bunch of lands and that you can't do a whole lot with that. This is the kind of thing that makes me so skeptical of the new card from Theris Beyond Death called Nessian Wanderer, which whenever it has this constellation ability, whenever enchantments enter the battlefield, that you can search for some lands just off the top of your deck, top three cards or something like that. Which sounds like a really good deal because you'd be getting some value from that. But that doesn't actually solve any of the problems that Enchantress decks regularly face, which tends to be that they already have plenty of lands. They just need more enchantments to cast. It's more a problem of Flood. And that's what makes me so impressed by that other card, Destiny Spinner, which actually gives you an outlet to use all of the mana that you have as a reward for all of the, uh, all of the enchantments uh, that you have on the board and all of the mana that you were able to accrue from that. It sort of solves the, the, the Flood problem. Are there other solutions that you guys have found that sort of help out this weakness when you encounter them in an Enchantress deck? Well, I think one thing that we should note here that has kind of helped that out is in the interim from when I first built that deck, which was probably way back, roughly returned to Ravnica era, since then we've gotten more Enchantress effects that make it easier to draw multiple cards per turn to get you past that land pocket. Um, SRAM, based from Kaladesh, draws you a card and you cast an aura spell so that's a you know you're going to be oftentimes casting probably two of you two out of three enchantments are generally auras in that kind of deck so sram kind of functionally works as an enchantress um we got satyr enchanter in one of the core sets we just got satis and champion in this new theros set so we've gotten three more essentially enchantresses for the deck there was season of growth i think was in the last ravnica set that when you cast a spell that targets a creature you control, you draw a card. Well, that basically when you cast an aura spell, you draw a card. So that's like almost another one of those, like an Enchantress's Presence kind of effect in the deck. So we've gotten four or five cards in the last several years that make the deck much more resilient compared to what it was when I first built it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I love mana sinks. I love the density also, just making sure that you're yeah. very conscious about having a density of those effects. Do you think maybe tutors might also be something else, like a Green Sun Zenith to go and find one of those Enchantress effects to make sure that you can get that engine going? Do you think that that would be reasonable, or is that a little bit too much uh, trying to, to cover up this, no, the, the weakness there? For sure. I, I ran Green Sun Zenith for the longest time in the deck, specifically oftentimes to just go get Argothian Enchantress. Being able to spend yeah. the, the Green Sun Zenith, spend basically three mana to go get Argothian straight into play and have it be something that couldn't be targeted as well, so I, it was very likely to stick around as an engine. I ran that for a long time. I've only recently taken it out. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's absolutely something you particularly had to do before we got this last batch. Nice. Yeah, that's a really cool one. Enchantress, watch out for your mana flood and try and find some solutions to help out. That way you don't have too many lands with nothing to use all that mana on. There are a couple of different ways that you can get around that, even though it is just sort of, even when, you know, someone isn't playing a bane of progress against you to destroy all enchantments, your deck can still sometimes have that issue of stalling out because it floods out. So that's definitely a thing to be aware of when you are building for this archetype. We're going to move on to our next one. And Matt, as I understand it, this is sort of a specialty of yours. This one is, and I'm a big fan of it. So the next category we're going to talk about is the Voltron decks. So Voltron decks, for those of you who don't know, maybe a little newer, haven't heard this term, it's decks that revolve around making one creature incredibly large, incredibly powerful, and then going to town, beating them down with, say, a Ural the Miststalker, which is a Naya commander that 
every time you put an enchantment on it, it gets bigger. Or maybe you're playing Valduck, which rewards you for having in, uh, auras and uh, equipments on Valduck. So you have those types of creatures. They get very large, very quick. You play a whole lot of uh, different cards that are just going to make them as big as possible. And then you ideally win in one or two swings, knocking people out one by one. You're doing a lot of combat damage, but it's all coming mainly from one creature. So what is a weakness that you've sometimes encountered in that deck? Not even someone is using a specific effect to, you know, undo your entire strategy. There's no silver bullet, but just like playing the deck, even goldfishing the deck on its own terms. What is something that sometimes can trip you up and make the deck stumble a little bit? So there's two major points, I think, that come into play when we're talking about how Voltron decks can be weak. The first one is you wanna watch out for the protection that you have. Obviously, if you're putting all your cards into one specific creature, you wanna make sure you're protecting it. Uh, one of the most common things that you can do with that is play Lightning Greaves. It's one of the most commonly played cards in the format. And that gives you know the equipped creature haste and shroud. Well, shroud can backfire every now and then because not only does it prevent your opponents from targeting your that creature, you can't target it with anything else either. So it kind of has the double-edged sword type of effect where yes, it's great, but also if you have more equipment that you wanna put onto it or more auras, you can't because Shroud prevents that from happening. So that's one of the biggest things that I think players, especially that are newer to playing Voltron style decks do tend to struggle with because they forget, you know, oh yeah, Shroud actually isn't all that great. It's still very good, but you need to make sure you're keeping that in mind when you're playing things out. So you said there were two points. What's the second one? So the second one, and this one kind of depends on the style of Voltron decks that you have. If you play a lot of equipment basic decks or equipment centered decks, you're going to be very, very mana hungry. So sometimes if you draw all of your payoff spells, say you draw your Sword of Fire and Ice and your Locks on Warhammer and all those big and expensive equipments, you also have to equip those onto your creatures and that costs a lot of mana. So sometimes either they can be slow or there's just a lot of mana and you don't have that mana necessarily. So maybe you only get one equipment onto your Voltron commander or your creature instead of two or three like you might with auras. So it's a, a, a thing that you need to kind of weigh out. I know my Valduck deck has struggled from time to time with, I want to get as many equipments on as possible, but I spend three mana to get a, an equipment out and it costs another three mana to equip it. I don't have all that mana to do just in one turn. So sometimes you can kind of trip yourself with mana costs when you're playing the equipment versions. So that is one thing that you also need to keep in mind. Yeah, that's a really great point because one of the specialties of the Voltron strategy is really its speed that it can sort of get in right under people before people have gotten the ability to set up their strategies. A Voltron deck that's you know operating at full speed can take them out before they get a chance to really respond. So if things are being a little bit slow, then sometimes that can be uh, a bit rough. So having the uh, extra stuff that helps guide to the equipment or helps, uh, you know, ramp you to those equipment uh, more quickly can sometimes be the exact thing that you need to help out there. And then, of course, paying attention to the shroud can be a really big deal. I've run into that one myself as well, where I'm just, like, even I have a Rayhan and Ishai deck, for example, and Rayhan lets me move counters onto another creature. If that creature has shroud, I can't put all the counters onto it. And that feels horrible. So I can't even imagine what it must feel like if you're in a Voltron deck where you've got the one creature that you want to put everything onto and the shroud is preventing you from doing it. Ah, what a nightmare. It, it does get pretty sticky, pretty uncomfortable sometimes because you need to make sure that you're you're playing things out. One of the solutions actually that I have found and I've needed to kind of do, discovered it the hard way, I'll admit, uh, but playing some either varied forms of protection, timing your commander out and, or whatever creature you're trying to beat down with, or just playing a backup target. One thing that a lot of people play in Valdeck decks, for example, uh, is Ogre Battle Driver because it synergizes really well with all the elementals that you are going to make. So that gives you a chance to equip onto Ogre Battle Driver, you know, buy some time, put the shroud on the Battle Driver for a little bit, put the equipment that you normally would be putting on back onto Valduk, and then put the Lightning Greaves, for example, back onto Valduk. So he has shroud again, but you have to kind of play things out. So you got to move the shroud first, then put all your equipment on, then put the shroud back on. So it's, it's a little bit of a timing thing. Yes, you do kind of make Valduk vulnerable for a little bit in this situation, but in the long run, it's going to pay off, though. Very nice. There's one shared weakness here between Voltron decks and Enchantress decks, and it's right there in the name Voltron from the Latin Voltrius, meaning all on one. So you're putting a bunch of, and I, I just made that up, by the way. Um, <laughs> okay. You're, 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 
you're putting all your equipment or your auras onto one creature. Um, mass bounce, particularly if it's combat step mass bounce that isn't targeted, is brutal in those two decks. Like you yeah. mentioned, having to re-equip everything, that really hurts in like a Valduck deck where you have to then re-equip all those creatures or lose all your auras in an Enchantress deck. And, you know, Sigarda and Ural having protection doesn't help in those circumstances. So the combat step mass bounce, particularly like Aether Eyes or Aether Spouts or something, is brutal if you're playing those decks. Yeah, it's it's a hard reset in a lot of decks. Yeah. I'm so, Dana, you like hardcore got me with that Latin, just like random uh, bit yeah. of trivia that turned out to be false. Like master class. Thank you. Subtle, subtle tricks there. Who are you? Oko? Anyway, uh, we're going to move on to our next archetype now. And this is a personal favorite of mine because we're talking about reanimator, which is objectively the best strategy and the thing that everyone should be doing. No, this is not a biased opinion. <laughs> so not reanimator, at not at all. Reanimator specializes simply in taking the creatures out of the graveyard and putting them into play for free it's amazing because you get to cheat the mana costs you'll use cards like animate dead or reanimate or victimize which are really really phenomenal and you can go about reanimator in a couple of different ways sometimes people will use effects like entomb or buried alive to put the creatures that they want to revive directly into the graveyard and then you can use those reanimation spells to just get them right there other times you will actually use something like marin of clan Toth, for example sacrifice those creatures and then bring them back for free at the end of the turn. So you sort of build up from small creatures to bigger creatures. Other times, you'll use effects that actually discard the creatures directly into the graveyard so that you can then reanimate them. And this is kind of actually one of the regular weak points of Reanimator. We're not even talking about silver bullets. We're not talking about, you know, the people who are scavenger grounding or bajuka bogging the graveyard. Just a regular old thing that reanimator can sometimes run into even when it's going unopposed and no one's exiling your graveyard is that the deck can stumble if you don't get anything into the yard in the first place if you don't have a sacrifice outlet to put the creatures into the yard if you don't have your buried alive or your entomb to put the creatures into the yard from your deck if you don't have a discard outlet you might get stuck with a bunch of big creatures that you would like to reanimate but they're all in your hand and you don't have enough mana to cast them and that can be really, really detrimental to a reanimator deck, is just if it can't get things into the graveyard in the first place. Yeah, yeah that's one of the big things that has kind of scared me away from playing reanimator decks is, you're, you, like you said, Joe, you're kind of doing three things at once. You have to get the reanimator target, then you have to get it in the graveyard, then you have to reanimate it. So right. it, it, for me, it, it's kind of a, a three-step process, which it, there's a lot of time for things to go wrong, in my opinion. And I, maybe I'm, I'm way off beat here, but it seems like, yeah, you, you go through all this effort when it, it could be super fragile because we've been telling people for almost 100 episodes now, you should play more Grave Hate. Because of people like me. Because of, people like <laughs> well, because of you. And, and a good example of this, um, I, I think it was last week or the week before in my shop, I played against uh, Marchesa the Black Rose deck and the, the player had the problem. He at some point commented, I, I can't do anything until I draw in uh, a sack outlet. And at one point when he finally drew one, it immediately got removed. Um, right. So, so none of the things the deck wanted to be doing, he could do really without having some kind of a sack outlet. Well, that was his first mistake was he told people right. what he needed so <laughs> right. they knew what to write. <laughs> so, so one of the solutions that I personally found, because I've got a bunch of different types of, of reanimator decks. I've got a Conrad, I've got a Marin, I've got a Mimeoplasm. I've been doing this whole graveyard thing for a while. But simply being very, very, very conscientious of your ratios. And each one of those commanders actually goes about reanimation in a different way. For example, Sir Conrad actively fills the graveyard all on his own. So it's less of a problem for him. Whereas Mimeoplasm, I need more ways to put things into the graveyard for it to be able to take advantage of those things. So you do have to be aware of which specific one of these things your commander in particular actually requires, but you need to be very, very careful of the ratios. For a very, very long time in my Mimeoplasm deck, I was running all the big creatures, whole bunch of them, but I was not running nearly enough discard outlets. I wasn't running the cards uh, like Thirst for Knowledge, for example, which is a really efficient way to just get some quick card advantage and then put a few things that you don't need into the yard. The new Thirst for Meaning from Theros Beyond Death, oh, I'm so excited for that card because it's yet one more. And I even found myself 
drifting away from cards like Windfall or Whispering Madness, which have everyone pitch their hand and then draw a bunch of new cards, I found myself drifting away from those because I was afraid of the value that it would give to my opponents before I remembered, wait, this fills the graveyard faster than anything else. Maybe I should actually return to these. And I did, and that gave me so many more juicy targets for the Mimi Plasm to be able to take. So making sure that I was conscientious of those, not just running the big, awesome creatures that are really, really enticing to reanimate, but also making sure that I had the ways to put them into the graveyard where they needed to be for me to get things going in the first place because I don't want to be stuck with a 10-mana Jingataxius stuck in my hand. And one thing I will, will mention here, too, we're not going to talk about Silver Bullets specifically, but one thing about Reanimator that is a bit of a problem, the Silver Bullets that do exist tend to be colorless. So, like, if you want to run a way to deal with an Enchantress or a, or a Voltron deck, like the Mass Bounce that we mentioned or something, only really blue has access to that, or maybe white with Settle the Wreckage just as mass removal. Um you can't really do that in other colors. Well, every deck has access to Scavenger Grounds or Soul Guide Lantern or Relic Progenitus or Tormod's Crypt. So that's another kind of general weakness to Reanimator is every deck can run answers to it. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't help. And it's also tough too. Like when I'm playing Mimiplasm, I'm of course going to be the person who's, you know, abusing the graveyards a whole lot. But if there's also a Marin player across the table from me, that can be sometimes tricky too, because I don't want them to have their graveyard. I want me to have their graveyard, which is also kind of tricky because I don't want to exile their graveyard, but I don't want them to use it either, which is kind of tough. Alrighty, let's move on to our next archetype and discover its Achilles heel. So the next one we're going to talk about is the standard aggro deck. All of the decks we've kind of talked about a little bit, they function a little bit in the aggro world. But I'm going to talk about this one because I love turning things sideways, and that's just what you do in aggro decks. So aggro decks, in case you haven't heard, is short for aggressive, which actually is a fact. I did not make that up, unlike Dana. <laughs> but it's just taking decks that play a lot of creatures. You soup them up, make them bigger than they might have been before, or you're just going very wide and using so many creatures that it doesn't matter how big they are because they're going to die anyways because there's just a sheer quantity of threats on the battlefield. That's it. It's short, simple, and I love it. But one of the weak points of the deck, so we'll get into those. One thing that I've come across several times with my Miri deck, for example, is kind of, could be defined as drawing the wrong half of your deck. I have a lot of mana dorks in there because you play some mana accelerants to get ahead of the curve. You don't want to play so many artifacts because you want all you want everything to be basically running off of creatures. So say you're playing a lot of Llanowar Elves and Birds of Paradise, if you draw all of those cards, you're not going to have really any payoffs. You can kind of stumble, you run out of gas because you're not playing anything that costs five mana or more where all of your haymakers are. So yeah, sometimes a, a Wrath of God will come and you just can't reload. You, you run out of steam, you have your whole hand played out, you have no cards in hand, and you get to top decking really quick. Even if you're gold fishing sometimes, you can play five or six lands, but you know by turn six, you have a bunch of tutus on the battlefield and not a whole lot else to do. Then I suppose, though, there's also the inverse where you draw all of the payoff cards, your overwhelming stampedes and stuff like that, yep. but you don't have enough of a board presence to actually make that meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. So Craterhoof Behemoth is an incredible card. Not on turn three, though. Same thing with <laughs> a lot of these. You know, you have, say, uh, Anthem Effects. You have Beastmaster Ascension. That's very, very good. But if you draw it too early, it's just going to be sitting there and it's going to be open to getting removed because everybody sees it. Beastmaster Ascension is a type of card where you want it to come down and then surprise everybody because you're going to be able to trigger it and get it online very, very quickly versus just sitting on the battlefield doing nothing for you. So it's it's kind of a, a weird dance where you want to make sure you have a right blend of payoff cards, a little bit of card advantage because you don't want to run out of steam, but then you also want to be able to set up to your payoff cards as well. So Crater of Behemoth on an empty battlefield still will swing in for a little bit, but it's not going to be near as impactful as it was if it has been properly set up. So making sure that you draw the good part of your deck early, and then you want to make sure you're drawing the, the better part of your deck later. Which is a, a tough thing to be able to it's, guarantee. That's, that's for every deck, I know. But I'm, I'm yeah. showing aggro a little favoritism, I will admit. <laughs> Well, but that's actually another point that you mentioned there, the running out of steam. That's another thing that especially aggro decks can be very, very susceptible to, even if you're going completely unopposed, is that you've played out everything and then you're stuck top decking. So that is actually another, this particular archetype is probably, you know, the the most vulnerable to uh, to to its own Achilles heel, I guess is what I would say. Because not only can you be completely blown up by a board wipe, but also it's 
on its own face, it can run out of steam, even if it doesn't go unopposed. Well, in, in aggro, aggro decks tend to be red as well. And red is a color that until recently had very limited options in terms of draw and recursion. So it was also oftentimes very challenging to rebuild in the aggro colors. Yeah, outside of green, which green in the past yeah. year has gotten insane. I mean, you have Great Henge, which is an absolutely absurd card. But you have all the other creatures that, you know, when a, when another creature enters the battlefield, you draw a card. You have so many of those effects now. It's negated a little bit if you're playing green. But if you're playing Boros, for example, or or uh, Rakdos colors, which is red and black, you don't have those options. Now, black has some good draw options but they're not near as tied to a snowball type of effect as green is. So if you're playing mm. Jeskai for some crazy reason, I don't know why anybody would play those colors, wow. but I, I'm they... getting just that. I'm just <laughs> picking on the Jeskai players out there. You know what you did, <laughs> but, but you're not. Mr. Selesnia doesn't like other colors. Wow. <laughs> Jeskai being Latin for bad. That wow. is true. <laughs> that is true. Mark Rosewater said that. Yeah, that was, that's straight from um, blog talk. But yeah, but oh but God. just different colors can do aggro in different ways. I mean, it's the same thing. If you're playing blue and you're playing a bunch of flyers, if you don't play your gravitational shift, you're stuck with a bunch of 1-1 flyers, which isn't near as intimidating as a bunch of 3-1s, and your opponent's side of the battlefield is a lot smaller too. Yeah, the the other, I guess, I'm, maybe this is diving a little bit too far away from the uh, the Achilles heelness. but another thing that I do sort of detect about the aggro strategy is it's predictability. All of your game plan is directly on the board. Everyone can see what you're up to because you are literally building a board presence with your stuff like Tendershoot Dryads and all of your tokens or your big souped up creatures and, and your Beastmaster Ascensions and stuff like that. Like that can actually be something where it causes everyone to know exactly what you're going to be up to. So that can make things a little bit tricky as well because you don't want your opponents to be able to anticipate what you're going to do because then that means that they'll be ready for it and they'll have an answer. They'll have something that can bounce your board. They'll have some type of fog effect that will stop you. And you don't want all of your work, all the mana, all the card investment that you've put onto the battlefield to be undone by a simple spore frog. You just don't want that to happen. So maybe another solution could also be sort of trying to hide those particular payoffs. You know, blowing people up with an overwhelming stampede, for example, is really great because it comes out of nowhere. Whereas playing the Beastmaster Ascension on turn three, people can see what you're up to. But if you play it later when you've already got a bunch of creatures in play and you use it that way, that can actually be a bit more effective at suddenly taking people completely off guard so that they weren't ready for you. So that might be another thing that aggro decks can kind of uh, lean into a little bit to sort of help them out there too. Yeah, definitely. And, and every color has a way to kind of work around it. If you're playing blue, you have access to counterspells. So if somebody tries to Aether Spouts you or, or a Wrath of God, you have ways to counter that. Or if you're red and you, you're afraid of fog effects, red does really, really well in like the, the skull crack or insult to injury where it prevents damage or keeps damage from being prevented, I should say. those That's where red makes its money. Or Grand Abolisher effects can stop things during combat, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, there's there's a couple of different things. Even red using additional combat steps might be something that people aren't really ready for. Um, that could be another way to take people by surprise there too. Yeah, there, there's all sorts of ways to kind of navigate and, and find a solution. And there's a way to do it in every color, which is nice. Because aggro might be one of the one of the more generally color open strategies. You can play mono black aggro if you really wanted to. It may not be as good, but it's it's going to be something you you can choose to do. If, but if you're playing, you know, mono green artifacts, you might be up a creek without a paddle. <laughs> hey, speaking of artifacts, that is actually our next archetype that we are going to take a quick study at. Dana, take it away. The next thing we'll talk about here is an artifact deck, and we're going to specifically be using that in the context of a deck built around its win condition being artifact-based, not necessarily equipment-based. So equipment-based tends to be more of a Voltron thing. We're looking at more decks that just win via interaction with artifacts. Um, and the big probable weakness here that I tend to see, um, and it's one I've experienced myself in my Veil of the Nightclad deck, is the mismatch between artifacts and non-artifacts. Uh, and what I mean there is there's a lot of really, really fantastic cards that do cool things with artifacts. We just got Emery and Urza recently, um, Psy Master Thopris not long ago, Padim, Goblin Welder, Duretti, um, the new Joyra, uh, Thopter Spy Network, Myriadin Besiege, Mechanized Production. Um, those are all really, really good in artifact decks, and none of them are artifacts. <laughs> right. So you run them in your artifact deck, but don't get the synergy you want from 
from having cards in your deck be artifacts, whether that's something like March of the Machines where you want to animate artifacts for an Alpha Strike or or use like a Tezzeret effect to deal with damage based on artifacts. They're all really good cards, but they don't necessarily lend themselves to the win condition you maybe want from that deck. Yeah. Oh man, they're, they're, all of those cards that you just named are so, so good. They give you so many amazing rewards in your Brea decks, in your Sahili decks, in any of those. But you, if you play them, they don't synergize with the artifacts. You might have like four cards in play that trigger amazing abilities when you cast an artifact or copy your artifacts or whatever, but they don't do anything with each other. And that just, that, if you have too many of those cards taking up all the deck slots and not enough artifacts, th that can really, really sting because you've got so many payoffs that aren't actually doing anything. The more payoffs that you include, and in, in, even though they're so cool, the more payoffs that you actually include in the artifact deck, the less effective they are. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm specifically not running you know, quite a few of the ones we mentioned on that list just for that reason, because if I did, it would knock my artifact count in that deck down from, you know, 43 or 44 down to in the, the low 30s. I just, to do what the deck wants to do, I can't have it be that low. So as a result, you know, I can't run Mechanized Production and I can't run Doctor Spy Network, uh, which is unfortunate because they're both fantastic cards, but it winds up being, you know, 12 enchantments and an artifact deck. And that's not what you, <laughs> right. that's not what you want. Yeah, and, and I think that's exactly the solution that you have to have for this particular issue. You've got to be selective, even though it stings so bad and you want to play all of these amazing, amazing effects. You have to withdraw slightly from the different payoff cards because every one that you remove makes the other payoff cards that much more potent. It hurts so much to remove those amazing cards, but you have to to keep the ratios of artifacts high enough to allow the payoffs to actually work with the number of artifacts in the deck the way that the deck needs it to aside from just having a bunch of enchantments in an artifact deck oh man it stings so much but you've, you gotta do it you gotta yeah. take out some of the payoffs to make the other ones glow uh one more thing um, um that's again kind of tangentially connected to silver bullets there tends to be more artifact sweepers that show up in people's decks than there are say enchantment sweepers vandal blast is a card that a lot of red decks run in a way that you don't kind of generically see with um enchantment sweepers uh, Shattering Spree is a card I see quite a bit by force. I've seen more Hercule Recall and Rebuilds that probably than I have Back to Nature's. Um, yeah. Even if you look back at like really old cards, I see Shatterstorm get played and I never see Tranquility get played. So that's also weakness in artifact decks. People, for whatever reason, are willing to just blow up all the artifacts in a way that they tend to not just blow up all enchantments. I think the fact that those effects hit mana rocks that absolutely are ubiquitous yep. is probably feeding into that in particular so yes definitely be aware of that as well out there too be aware of the way that your deck can stumble on its own and also the density of uh silver bullets that are almost incidentally silver bullets that other people might be running too that's a great thing to be aware of we are going to take a quick pause from this topic to move into one of our favorite segments and that is challenging some stats there's a lot of information a lot of data a whole bunch of numbers here on edhrec but we don't always agree with it sometimes we think that cards are seeing too much play sometimes we think that cards are seeing too little play so that is why we like to challenge the statistics matt start us off what is your challenge the stats this week so this week, my challenge of stats is for Enchantress decks. I'm sure there's lots of them getting built now that Theros Beyond Death has come out. If you want cast triggers in your Enchantress deck, which I'm assuming you do, say two Voss of the Sunlit, for example, uh, that's a commander that cares a lot about having enchantments on the battlefield and then recasting enchantments at the same time. So I have two enchantments, actually, a little two for one, that are all about getting recasted. So the first one today is going to be Molting Skin, along with its partner, Broken Fall. And they almost are identical cards, except for the name, really. But functionally, they're the exact same. So they are two and a green, and they read, when return X, so Molting Skin or Broken Fall, to its owner's hand, regenerate target creature. That's it. You bounce them back to the hand, and you can do it more than once. So say you bounce a Broken Fall, bounce it back to your hand, recast it for two and a green, pop it back to its hand again. Why not? Regenerate creature again, recast it. So it's nice that every time you cast it, you can just bounce it back. There's no activation cost. There's no, you can only do this once per turn because you just keep to replaying it. You get to replay it again and you can replay it again. If you have enough mana, it's a good mana sink, especially if you have an enchantress on the battlefield. If you're drawing a card every time that you cast an enchantment spell, 
these are perfect because you can cast them essentially as many times as you want per turn and just keep replaying them and replaying them. I love this. I've I've never heard of these cards before. This reminds me a lot of the card um, Flickering Ward, which we've challenged on a previous episode, which also has a similar ability where you can pay a mana to return it to your hand so that you can repeatedly cast it. That requires a lot of white mana. These can be a little bit more generic. Yeah, they're three mana, but that's totally worth it to get some of those engines back up. And oh, what, what a cool fusion of protection and reusability. Matt, I love this pick. This well, might be one of my favorite picks that you've ever done for Challenge Stats. These are so cool. Whoa, it's, it's bold words, Joey. <laughs> I appreciate maybe, that. Maybe just the fact that they're brand new to me is making me a little bit overhyped for them. I don't know. This is a very creative solution to the exact problem that we were mentioning earlier on in the show about how Enchantress decks might need more enchantments to get the ball rolling. So enchantments that specifically like, can do that are all the better. That's why Estrid's Invocation is so good, for example, because that is an enchantment that can return itself to your hand for you to recast. Well, these are other enchantments that you can do that at will. It has less of a desirable effect maybe than Estrid's Invocation. Estrid's Invocation can copy any enchantment, and that's a really cool prospect. But even just protecting your commander from some random, you know, board wipe effects can be really, really cool. Matt, I love this pick. This is a great way to sort of shore up that mana uh, flood weakness that sometimes Enchantress decks run into. These are cool picks. Yeah, these are these are not showing up on enchantress deck theme pages at all on the website yeah between the two of them they're in less than 200 decks so molting molting skin is in 65 decks and broken falls in 125 they're not getting played at all not nearly enough i love it and my challenge this week is also going to be a spell that costs three mana two and a green i'm looking at a very bizarre card but before i get to what it is i have to give you guys some context I told you that part of my New Year's resolution for magic was going to be that I take a critical look at my decks and see whether they need to be the commanders that they are, or if maybe the heart of the strategy could be ported over into a different commander. I wanted to shake things up a little bit within all of the decks that I have to see if those commanders deserve to be the commanders, or if I might find the actual strategy that I'm after in a different way. And this kind of led me to look very, very, very critically at my Lord Windgrace deck. For context on that, my Windgrace deck began as Titania Protector of Argoth, who's this amazing 5-mana elemental creature. She gives you more 5-3 elementals every time your lands die. That is how the deck began. And then I saw the green and red Omneth come out in Battle for Zendikar, and I was like, ooh, wait, maybe I should try this one out? Maybe I'll try this landfall strategy instead. But then the Gitrog monster came out who draws you cards when your lands die. And I was like, ooh, green and black. Joey loves that. So I moved it over there. And then Windgrace came out and I was like, well, now I've got to play all of them. And so I did. And I really think that I kind of lost my way there. And so instead of playing the Jund landfall, now I've actually reverted back to Titania Protector of Argoth. And guys, I could not be happier because really the thing that I liked doing was very much the Titania plan with a whole bunch of creatures that come out of my lands dying rather than just the landfall stuff that the other commanders were encouraging. And this is why my challenge to stats pick is going to be for Titania decks. Really long road to get here. I know. I appreciate y'all for bearing with me. The card that I'm looking at that doesn't see nearly enough play and is super spicy in Titania is the card Natural Affinity. Again, this is a three mana card, two and a green for an instant that says until end of turn, all lands become two, two creatures that are still lands the key important piece of this card is that it is an instant titania gives you creatures whenever your lands die which means that one of the things that you do is sacrifice all of your lands say to a zurin orb or a sylvan safekeeper and then you've got a bunch of five threes on the battlefield really really great but that means that if someone wrecks your board then you're completely up the creek without a paddle and you have lost your own mana to be able to assemble an army. That's really, really awkward. So what you can do instead is use this card, Natural Affinity. You play your Titania, maybe make a small number of elementals, enough to sort of threaten people out. And if they cast a board wipe, if they attempt to cast a Wrath of God, you can then play Natural Affinity, turn all of the lands into creatures. All of the lands will also die but only you will get value from it because Titania will see all of your lands die and give you a board full of five threes while everyone else has no lands at all. It is so good. It is so game winning. It is so awful. But at the same time, you get like eight five three elementals out of the deal. It, it's such it's easily one of my favorite forms of protection, quote unquote, in that deck. I couldn't be happier when I see this card in my hand. Yeah, and you win the game. Like it's one thing to destroy lands just to do it. <laughs> but if you're going to do it and you'll just kill everyone in two turns perfectly reasonable 
Yeah, yep. and this only shows up in 27% of Titania decks. Not nearly enough. This is safety. You feel very safe playing Titania out into a relatively empty board when you have a natural affinity in your hand. It feels to me almost like a heroic intervention. Obviously, heroic intervention is really amazing at protecting your entire board, but natural affinity is really great at making your opponents pay for their hubris and attempting to get rid of your stuff. You make all the lands into creatures, they all die, and only you get rewards for it. So then everyone ends up right back where they were, only worse. It is so delicious and so disgusting, and I should probably stop talking about it. Dana, what is your challenge? <laughs> well, lately I've been um, choosing old enchantments from old sets for my challenge of stats, so I'm going to do that for one more week here, and I'm going to use, <laughs> uh, from Judgment, an old enchantment, Web of Inertia. And Web of Inertia is two and a blue. At the beginning of combat on each opponent's turn, that player may exile a card from their graveyard. If that player doesn't, creatures they control can't attack you this turn. And the reason I'm mentioning this is a friend of mine messaged me today asking if I happen to have a copy because he has an Aloro Enchantress deck in, in colors that can run this, and he just kind of was looking for stuff for it today and realized he was already running Rest in Peace and already had Leyline of the Void in the deck and like three other pieces of graveyard hate. So routinely his opponents don't have graveyards, which means when he plays Web of Inertia, no one can attack him. It's just a perfect propaganda effect in a deck that has a lot of graveyard hate, and it's only in like 200 and some decks on EDH Rec. I don't think it goes everywhere, but I think there are probably plenty of decks out there that routinely are attacking graveyards to, to give people no uh, cards to sacrifice to the web, and it winds up being just a perfect form of defense. It's a real shame, Dana, that this is your last episode of the EDH Rec cast because you're talking about cards that exile things from the graveyards. No, it's your, it's your choice. Don't. You can choose to not exile your card, assuming you have any left in your graveyard. And that's talking about rest in peace and all of the relics and the, oh man, this is a delicious combo. I understand. And I also get that I can't really be on a high horse because I just talked about destroying right. everyone's <laughs> right. for benefit. I understand my hypocrisy right here, but I feel very personally attacked <laughs> by by your web of inertia pick because of the synergy that you described. Please leave my graveyards alone. So let's move on, Joey, from talking about attacking your graveyard specifically. My specific graveyard, yes. Your specific <laughs> graveyard to talking about the next archetype, which is life gain decks. Yeah, life gain decks are basically all in the name there. They gain a bunch of life and they have amazing rewards for the fact that you gained a bunch of life. You know, Karlov of the Ghost Council, for example, gets really huge every time that you gain life. Uh, oh, and then you've also got cards like Crested Sunmare, for example, which gives you a bunch of horse tokens whenever you gain life. And you've also got things like the Exanguine Blood combo, which can gain you life, cause other people to lose life, gain you life, cause other people to lose life. It can be really, really great. You've also got cards like Felidar Sovereign that make you win the game just for having a bunch of life. Like there's a whole lot of stuff that can happen in these life gain decks that is really, really, really cool. But unfortunately, that can also sometimes be a bit of the life gain decks weakness is their payoffs. Again, we're, we're not going to be talking about the silver bullets. There's also the weakness to life gain, you know, commander damage or infect can also be a way that people get underneath the amazing 200, 400, however much life that you are able to gain. Life gain unobstructed can gain hundreds of life, but if you don't have those payoff cards, then you're just not going to be able to do anything with all of that life gain and you're really just spinning your wheels it doesn't matter if you're able to double your life total with a beacon of immortality if you don't have anything to do with all of that life if you don't have your ether flux reservoir and you just have a bunch of cards that are slowly gaining you life your deck isn't actually doing a whole lot to the board or helping you win basically at all and so that can be a really tough trick for life gain decks even when they don't have a silver bullet against them not getting those payoff cards or worse getting one of those payoffs removed before you're able to take advantage of it can be really really detrimental yeah i mean unlike um, having a mana sink where there's a lot of them out there um there's also not a ton of life sinks necessarily there's not a lot of things you can really <laughs> do with it either so it becomes tricky finding ways to spend that extra life and use it as a resource yeah, this is one of the things that Black particularly specializes mm -hmm. so much in, in being able to pay life to draw cards with stuff like Necropotence or whatever. But I really do think that card advantage, it isn't just a thing that aggro decks need, but also life gain decks, I also think, sort of require the ability to dig to find those answers. Tutors, maybe if you are comfortable using them, but just being conscious of the density of win conditions that you're running in your life gain deck, because... 
I don't know, I, I've personally had this experience, and maybe you guys have as well, where we've played against maybe that Olero deck that doesn't have too many win conditions. It is a very control-oriented deck, and it's gaining a bunch of life, but it is more doing the not losing thing as opposed to the active winning thing. And that can be really difficult if the deck doesn't have enough win conditions. It might just be spinning its wheels. Yeah, that's something that I've, I've come across several times is... The, like you said, Joey, it's not the decks winning, but they're just not losing. And that's a very, very big distinction that I think a lot of players, they don't really keep in mind when they're building their decks. They think about, oh, it's going to be impossible to kill me. This is going to be great. But then they sit there and, and, and they can't win a game. They can't close it out. So finding a way to, to leverage that, Dana says all the time, if you have more than one life, then you wasted however much life you had. I'm not going to go that far necessarily, <laughs> but... The, the, that is, you know, the, the principle. Yeah, the principle. Yeah, the true. principle of the matter is, you know, what are you doing with all that life? Aetherflux Reservoir is fantastic because you can just dome everybody down. So when you have ten thousand life, it doesn't <laughs> matter. You can just dome everybody for eleven 1, hundred and whatever. A lot. That that seems like overkill. That seems like the kind of thing that a guy who regularly plays overwhelming stampedes with Pathbreaker Ibexes on the board. That seems like the kind of thing that you would do is doming people for lots and lots. I mean, yeah. some. Sometimes all you need is 50 life to win the game if you've got like those Felidar abilities or something like that. But if you don't have the Felidars or you don't have a way to get them back if they get removed, something like that, like just making sure that you actually are able to locate those uh, payoffs can be very, very important because life gain decks are able to do a whole bunch, but without those payoffs, they're doing a whole bunch of nothing. To be clear, they're doing the nothing powerfully, but they're still doing a little bit of nothing if they aren't able to find the places where they can actually focus all of that life gain into something lethal. Anyway, that's enough of life gain. Let's move on to our next strategy. So the next one I'm going to take care of, it's landfall decks. And landfall decks, I know Dana and I, we both have one. Joey, so maybe someday you'll see the light. <laughs> but I just switched it to Titania. That's land death. Right. Land destruction. But anyways, deck. landfall. Yeah. Landfall decks is when it, uh, it's decks that are all talking about getting lands onto the battlefield. Say you're playing fetch lands, so you want any card to say, when a land enters the battlefield, do this. For example, Omnath Locus of Rage reads, whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, you create a 5-5 elemental token. There's other ones where if a land enters the battlefield, you proliferate and you put a, uh, another counter of anything on the battlefield. There's all sorts of different effects that happen when a land enters the battlefield under your control. Now, whether you want to spam these types of effects with fetch lands and evolving wilds or whatever else you have, Basically, you're all about accruing resources. You want to have as many lands on the battlefield as possible with at least one or two payoff cards to make it worth it. It's a very powerful strategy, but one that I've seen come across every now and then and one that I have accidentally discovered, you can run out of lands to put into play. You can just flat out put all the lands, however many you have, if you have 40 or 45 lands, if you get them all on the battlefield or, or into the graveyard, you have nothing else to do, so you you literally do run out of ways to build around your theme. Yeah, you play so many Traverse the Outland, so many Boundless Realms, so many Cultivate, so many Evolving Wilds, that eventually you go to play a Kodama's Reach or an Explosive Vegetation or something, and you search through your deck, and boom, you're out of basics. <laughs> There's nothing yep. for you to get lands. Yep. That's so awkward. And that has nothing to do with whether your opponents are trying to stop your strategy. It's just a thing that the deck can sometimes naturally run into all on its own, and that's so awkward. It is very awkward. Or I... One of my favorite cards in a landfall deck is Perilous Forays, where you can pay one and sacrifice a creature, and you search up a land that has a basic land type. Well, I found a way to kind of go infinite. I basically, I put every basic land that I had in my library, put it onto the battlefield. That was very well and good. It was very explosive. But the next turn, I drew a ramp spell, and I was like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? It was absolutely <laughs> worthless. So yeah, it is, it is a very real problem that you can run out of basics, especially... If you're playing a two or three color deck, you might not have enough basics in there to really support where you're playing a lot of dual lands or utility lands. That does cut into how many lands you can pull out because there aren't a lot of cards that let you fetch out and then put on the battlefield a non-basic. So you have to kind of play around with that. And we, we advocate all the time, play more basics in your decks, people. <laughs> and, and part of the problem, too, isn't even necessarily just that you don't run enough basics. It's that you kind of can't sometimes. You're going to fill some slots with, you know, the original fetch lands and you're going to have Fabled Passage in there and 
uh, what's what's the new fetch? Prismatic Vista, as well as maybe even some of the bad ones like Evolving Wilds and Terramark Expanse, and maybe a Valkut if you're playing in a two-color deck. Um, so it's not even like you're being greedy and running just a bunch of you know Reliquary Tower kind of effects. You're going to have to devote X amount of slots usually to fetch lands as well, and pretty quickly you find yourself, okay, I'm at you know, 22 basics, but I can't really put any more in the deck if I want to support this suite of fetch lands as well. And that 22 lands goes away very, very quickly in a landfall deck. Yeah, especially if you're playing any of the, the solution cards that we have to this problem. Say you're yeah. playing Splendid Reclamation or, or Ramanive Excavator, stuff that lets you play cards out of your graveyard even. Sure, you, you can get those out of the graveyard, but that just kind of staves off. You, you want to find a way to get lands back into your library somehow. Elixir of Immortality types of effects. But yeah, you can definitely run out of lands to put onto the battlefield very easily if you're playing a, a more tuned landfall deck. Well, in some situations, the, the solution actually exacerbates the problem. That Crucible of Worlds or that Excavator just allows you to replay that fetch land to go get another basic. And it just speeds up how quickly you run out of those basics sometimes. Yeah. 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 It, it can still be useful. I do. That's why I find uh, Titania to be so interesting, for example, because, you know, putting those lands into the graveyard to then specifically bring them back. Sometimes that can be enough to get the landfall doing, you know, the stuff again. Uh, that can be really, really great. But actually, Dana, I, I know that you actually specifically moved your landfall deck into a different commander because of this conundrum where you were running out of landfall uh, lands to be able to play. Well, there was a couple uh, aspects to that. I, I moved away from Omnath to Mina and Den pretty early on just because everyone immediately kind of fixated on Omnath and wanted to remove him. And it became a game where I needed to run so many cards to keep Omnath safe that that also sucked up a bunch of slots in the deck. I didn't want to deal with that. Um, whereas Mina and Den, nobody really cares <laughs> that they're in play. <laughs> um, but the second thing I wound up doing was I, I switched from a landfall deck more to kind of a lands matter deck running creatures that just care about lands or interact with them versus ones that care about landfall triggers. Because I'm not running Angry Omnath in the actual deck anymore. I'm not running Avenger of Zendikar in the deck anymore. Just for that problem, I found there was just enough times when either just through bad luck or because we get to the point in that late game where I needed the landfall triggers and just didn't have a way to generate two or three or four in a turn because of the lack of basics that I'd already stripped out of my deck. So I've definitely moved that deck way more into cards that just care about the amount of lands in play versus cards that specifically care about a land trigger off landfall. That's a really, I mean, I still think that you're crazy for not playing on that adventure. <laughs> I think they're amazing, but I, I also really like that. So it's not just a solution to maybe play some of those recursion effects like the Splendid Reclamation or whatever, but also to lean into maybe stuff like the new Multani, for example, yeah. which gets huge and has trample and reach, and it's equal to the number of lands that you control. So it isn't just that you're using Mina and Den, which can return lands to your hand for you to be able to play to retrigger landfall. It's also that you have the ability to recur them from the land to get those effects, and you're leaning into not just the act of playing the land but also the density of them those are some really clever solutions to help get around this type of problem it does require a little bit of bending around our understanding mm -hmm. of what landfall means but it's really going to pay off dividends i think because i've seen your mania and den deck and it's mean and it's nasty and it does things that's what i'm supposed to do <laughs> exactly Alrighty, we're going to move on to our next archetype this is the blink archetype People are definitely going to be really familiar with this because some of these commanders have been precon commanders like Rune of the Hidden Realm or Aminatu the Fate Shifter. Another famous one from the conspiracy sets is Brago King Eternal. All of these commanders are able to exile stuff that you control and then return it to the battlefield. And the point of this is to get those enter the battlefield effects over and over and over again, which can just give you so much value of value engines like you wouldn't believe you can bounce your mold drifter blink your cloud blazer exile your eternal witness your duplicant all of these amazing things reclamation sage vencer there are so many abilities that you can get multiple versions of when you're able to blink these things and those are great effects but they're also little is the only problem it's a lot of value but it's also kind of gonna take a long time to actually grind the enemy down and you're really relying upon stuff to have a haymaker to actually be able to take advantage of all of that value. By your own deck, you might accidentally give people 
extra turns that they shouldn't have when you're already in a dominating position. If you've been blinking that Reclamation Sage so many times that no one is able to stick an artifact or an enchantment on the battlefield, that puts you in, into just this amazing place to be able to win the game. But sometimes these decks can be really, really slow because even if their deck is generating tokens, like with the Mirror Battlesphere, for example, sometimes they're really tiny tokens. So you need, I guess, the, uh, the thing to be aware of in a blink deck is that its weakness is, I guess, closure. It's actually closing that game out. You don't want to take that long to grind the enemy down. Yeah, you're drawing like eight cards or something, but if they're all producing tiny minor effects, you really do need something else that's going to actually close that game out so that your opponents don't have the extra time to maybe catch up from those things. That's something that I've noticed anytime that I've tried playing Brago or that I've tried playing, playing Rune is just that these effects are really amazing, but they don't always have enough oomph to really close things out. And that's definitely something that people should be aware of when they're playing this strategy. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot like a life gain deck to a degree. You need to be able to execute on all that value you're generating. And that can be a problem sometimes in those decks. Yeah, if I do have that Mirror Battlesphere, that's a really great thing, but I'd have to blink it probably every turn to make it enough tokens. And I mean every turn, not just on each right. of my turns, like every single turn, every other person's turn to be able to produce enough tokens to make that lethal. Or maybe I run more effects, for example, like a Th Cathar's Crusade, which would actually pump up everything that I have, something to really, you know, stick the landing once I've got dominating control in a Blink deck. And I do think that this problem is actually, and I say problem, like Blink decks are really good, but this is like a slight stumble that they sometimes run into is that it can take them a while to close things out. I think that that sort of particular issue, that particular Achilles heel, quote unquote, for them, is one of the reasons why sometimes Blink decks accidentally transition into the infinite combos that you sometimes see with stuff like Deadeye Navigator and Palancron, which can give you infinite mana because the Deadeye is blinking the Palancron to untap your lands over and over and over again, and you've got so much mana. Or sometimes there's the Aminatu and Felidar Cat combo, which... Yeah, these cards are really, really good together, but I almost wonder if one of the reasons that sometimes these combos appeal to Blink players is precisely because the deck sometimes struggles to put together an actual win condition, even with all of the value. It sometimes is so slow to close things out that they are just drawn to the combo to finally, finally get there. For example, Dana, I know that your co-host Max on CMDR Central has a Brago deck. Is this an issue that he's run into sometimes? Absolutely. Yeah, you get to that point where there's multiple things he can blink, but they don't necessarily advance the board state, particularly in terms of mana rocks. Like I've seen a ton of games where he's got a Basalt Monolith out and a Mana Vault and some other rocks so he can blink those and generate, you know, nine colorless mana in the second main phase after already using them in the first main phase, but doesn't have anything he can actually do with that mana. And it's a really difficult thing to balance in that deck, finding a right the amount of things you can blink for value and having a density of things you can use all that value on to win a game. Yeah, definitely one of those sort of like the, the ratios and the payoffs that we've mentioned mm -hmm. for some of the other archetypes that we've discussed today, making sure that you have the stuff that doesn't necessarily just focus on the value, but actually focuses on this is how I will win the game once I have gotten enough value to really dominate. I need to be able to close that door because otherwise I'm giving them extra turns that they don't deserve because I have dominating control and I need to be able to close things out. <laughs> I can't give them extra time to catch up and maybe thwart what I'm doing. Can't let them do that. So that is definitely a thing that Blink decks need to be aware of is that problem of closure and find a few other ways to give them the oomph that they need to really close that door. Our next category is going to be a fun one because Dana, you have a Super Friends deck. I do and indeed. And it's weird. So tell us all about Super Friends. So first of all, we'll talk about it gen generally speaking. Super Friends um, refers to Planeswalkers. So it's a strategy built around running, you know, a, a larger than average amount of Planeswalkers, oftentimes those being the main theme or win condition of your decks, you know, 10, 12, 15, sometimes more Planeswalkers in a single deck. And in some way, shape, or form, you're going to use those abilities in the Planeswalkers to generate some kind of a win condition to kill everyone. So that's basically Super Friends. You're from the Latin for super friendius. <laughs> could, don't even. Could, don't could even. Ma could maintain that one. Um, <laughs> so, you're, so you're just trying to use all, all those walkers to win the game. Um, myself, personally, I have a mono white Jiru uh, with eyes open super friends deck. So it's, you know, has the challenges inherent both in super friends and in mono white. <laughs> right. 
it's a very strange lens that you're able to bring to this particular table. But what is a weak point, not just of the mono whiteness, but also of the super friends archetype that you sometimes come across in your deck, even when you don't have people that are specifically opposing the planeswalkers and doing everything that they can to take you out? What are some things that even when the deck is running optimally, you sometimes accidentally stumble on? Um, the cards themselves tend to be large and dirtily. They tend to have higher than average mana costs. And you don't want to cast them, generally speaking, unless you have a way to protect them. Now, some Planeswalkers, like Elspeth Sun's Champion, you can cast her and then drop three soldier tokens and have blockers to keep her alive till the next turn. But that's not every single Planeswalker deck. And a lot of the protection, quote-unquote, that you hear people talk about is referring to standard, where there's only one opponent. So, you know, yes, your Planeswalker can come into play, can kill one creature. In a standard environment, that's probably protection. In a format where you have three opponents, it really isn't. So the big problem is you don't want to start casting the spells in your deck that make up the majority of your win condition and the majority of your theme until you have ways to protect them out first, usually creature blockers. So that gets really tricky. You want to have the bodies out first, then the planeswalkers, which are, are already slow because they're sorcery speed activation. So it makes a slow deck even slower. I think also the the first thing that you mentioned about how these can be sort of large and dirtly or a little clunky or something like this is a strategy that I think really suffers if it misses land drops. Obviously, in any commander game, if you're missing on land drops, your deck is not going to perform as well. But there are some archetypes that are sometimes able to work around that a little bit better than others. Whereas Super Friends, if you have a soft beginning and you maybe stumble on mana a little bit, by the time that you're finally deploying Planeswalkers, a lot of people are going to have a lot of creatures that are able to take it down. And the fact that a lot of them are four or five or six mana can be really, really a struggle to even deploy multiple of them in one turn. Like doubling season's amazing with planeswalkers, but it's very difficult for you to play a doubling season and a planeswalker in the same turn. That just really very can almost never happen unless it's like the super, super late game. This is the kind of thing where you do have to do things kind of one at a time, which makes it a very decidedly slow deck, which can sometimes sting a little bit if you're against savvier opponents who, you know, aren't going to let you get away with that kind of thing. I think Super Friends decks, they're kind of like Blink decks in that, sure, that every single card they play, they're getting a ton of value out of it, but to what end? Or what what are they playing towards? You know, they, it's kind of like the Moldrotha problem almost even. They sit there and they get so much value out of every little piece of their deck but it's not enough to actually set them over the edge to to go ahead and win a game even. They're sitting there and yeah, Jace draws you an extra card and and yes, the the four mana Elspeth makes a couple tokens, but that's not anything near what everybody else is doing at the table. It requires a lot of time investment in addition to cards with Super Friends decks to get enough value out of them so that they're actually, you know, putting you ahead of where you would have been playing another card for example. Right. I, I've even seen, even in the events where you actually get a Planeswalker and then maybe next turn you've got down the Deep Close Gate and it doubles all of the the counters on the Planeswalker and then you're able to use its ultimate. A lot of ultimates can be very, very devastating for your opponents. There are some that can straight up lock people out of the game, but they also still don't win the game. So even in the event that you get your Planeswalker ultimates, sometimes that isn't always enough to close the door too. So yeah, like you said, it's a very much sort of a, an issue of closing the door. Not only do Planeswalker decks take a while to get themselves actually ramped up, and, and getting the ball rolling, but also making sure that they have enough to really finish things once they've gotten to the point where they need to be. That can be another problem that sometimes they run into. They want to make sure that they can actually close that door once they've established the dominance. So how do you solve that problem, I guess, winds up being the question. And in my Jero deck, one thing that works, works nicely is Jero himself tutors up a Planeswalker. So the sequence is kind of logically baked in. I'll play a commander. In his case, it's a commander that has Vigilance so I can still attack with it and have it be there as a blocker, then it goes and gets the Planeswalker that I will then cast next turn with the blocker already in play. So Jiru kind of forces that discipline on you to a degree where it wants you to do things in the correct sequence. I think the solution for that is having to force yourself to be a little bit disciplined and make sure you play things in the correct order. Get the board state established first and play your Planeswalkers then. Because there's been plenty of times against Super Friend decks, I've seen someone do the opposite, where they just are so eager to get those Planeswalkers into play, they play them before they have everything firmly established. And taking a breath and taking a moment and taking an extra turn or two to get things in place that protect your walkers first makes all the difference. 
Yeah. And how about the closing the door thing? Is that a problem that you've sometimes run into? And do you have any tips for getting around that particular problem? It's really tricky. And weirdly enough, my mono white planeswalker deck kind of has a solution for that. Just because the vast majority of mono white planeswalkers tend to make tokens in some way. So it just kind of wound up being that I can make it into a token deck. White tends to have things that support tokens. So in my particular case, I had a solution because the Planeswalker pool is so narrow. The solution was just there for me. Um, if you're not so fortunate, if you're playing with a wider array of colors, I think what you really have to do is look at your Planeswalkers and say, okay, yes, this Jace is useful, but I have a bunch of useful Jaces already. I need some Planeswalkers in this deck that are going to advance me to a point where I can win the game. And does this do it or not? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing is to lean into, you know, the ideal scenario is that you get the ultimate off of these Planeswalkers. So how can you take advantage of those ideal scenarios? There's a Jace Unraveler of Secrets that, you know, prevents everyone else from casting the first spell on their turn. It counters the first spell that everyone plays for the rest of the game, which is great, but again, doesn't win you anything. And compare that to maybe something like a Johnny Unyielding, whose ultimate puts a bunch of counters onto your creatures and to your planeswalkers so if you are making those tokens suddenly they're a lot more lethal than they used to be and all of your other planeswalkers get beefed up too or kioras for example they can make huge kraken tokens that can also really lead things out to a game ending position um, even attraxa decks will sometimes just soup up the attraxa as a means of winning the game after they've established control too so there are definite workarounds there but it's something to be super hyper conscious of because the planeswalkers alone sometimes don't get it they are a little bit tough to get off the ground and sometimes it's tough to actually stick the landing as well they provide so much value in the interim along the actual flight that you almost don't care about those things but you want to make sure that you're conscious of how to begin that journey and how to end it too well, that was quite a lot of different archetypes with a lot of different Achilles heels to them. But I mean, Achilles heel isn't, I think, necessarily just a tell about, oh, you know, everyone's got a weakness. I think that Achilles heel is a tale about how you should know what your weaknesses are so that you can be prepared for them. Because sometimes, like Achilles, you might not actually know what they are. Sometimes it's difficult to detect, even when your deck feels like it's totally popping off. But there are some stumbling blocks that decks can sometimes run into, even when they're operating without any obstruction whatsoever, that are really important to keep in mind so that you can help mitigate those, you can help protect against those, you can help, you know, start at the deck brewing stage and take a critical look at your ratios, at your payoffs, at all of those different things to help make sure that the deck is doing exactly what it should do. Guys, this was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed this episode, and I hope that it helps uh, people pick the, the correct cards when they're building their decks for these different archetypes, because they're a whole bunch of fun weaknesses and all. They're a lot of fun to be able to both exploit those weaknesses and also make sure that you are aware of all of the shortcomings of your deck. Ah, it's such a fun topic. I really, really enjoyed this one. Well, with that, I think we are going to call this episode to a close. I hope that we've done Hakdos the Unscarred proud. I've been talking about all of these different Achilles heels, and I hope that he doesn't feel so alone, that he's the only one who has a weird weakness. I hope that he feels a little bit better about that. Uh, I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And hey, if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach, and you can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can find the cast at EDH Retcast on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have a question, a keen insight to EDH Rec's data, or maybe a challenge to stats pick that you think that we should know about, you can contact us at EDHRetcast at gmail.com. Listeners, please let us know what you think your deck's Achilles heels are and the clever ways that you found to work around those different uh, potential shortcomings or those stumbles or something like that. What is a way that you've been able to get past your deck's own weaknesses? Because those are really great level of of moments that people can use to share and learn and grow with each other. They're really, really awesome exercises to do. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. I'll have you know, Joey, I played Natural Affinity in my I had a green-white deck, go figure, but I was playing Elish Norn in it. That's... And that was fun. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs>